Matthew chapter 4 this morning. For the first time of two opportunities, we'll consider Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward a hunger. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him up into a, a holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest that any time thou dast thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world, and the glory of them, and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then said Jesus unto him, Get thee thence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and deaconed, or ministered unto him. Father, we thank you this morning for an opportunity to consider again the marvelous event of the temptation of Christ as recorded in the scripture. This congregation has just sung that they yearn for the day of temptation's death and how that expression and song rings true in our hearts and minds as we think about the way in which sin continues to call unto us and sadly, we continue to answer. And yet we see in the person of Christ such a marvelous response, such a glorious example. And yet we must be careful for the reason that the temptation took place between the devil and our blessed Lord has little to do with the example of it, but rather with the proving of who Messiah is and exactly what Messiah had come to do and the prospect that we share this morning of a coming day when indeed temptation itself, like sin itself, shall meet its death. We do long for that day and we pray for clarity as we consider the truth of the text today for we ask in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. 
Amen. Almost everybody here would know by heart, trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding in all thy ways. Acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. The way that every child of God on earth should live is exactly the way the Son of God did live. Today's text renders proof. I'd like to begin this morning with what I call the helicopter view of Matthew's gospel. We've done this on a number of occasions since we began uh, to preach our way through Matthew last June. Matthew presents the truth of Jesus the Christ under the umbrella of God's king and kingdom as promised. Therefore, back in Matthew chapter 1 and 2, we focused upon the birth of Christ as the born king of the Jews. And then, of course, following the birth record of Matthew 1 and 2, we came to Matthew chapter 3, uh, which focuses upon the baptism of Christ as the king of prophecy and promise that identifies himself with the sins of the people for the purpose of salvation. And now, in chapter 4 of Matthew, uh, we come to the battle of Christ and the king's refusal to rule over a lesser kingdom than the very kingdom of God as promised. Having considered the birth of the king and the baptism of the king, we now will follow the text to consider the battle of the king of promise at the beginning of Matthew chapter 4. Now, next week, we're going to return to this same section of the Word of God and fill in some of the usual things that are right to be said and learned from the temptation of Jesus as recorded in Matthew, as recorded in Mark, and as recorded in Luke. But today, we want to work with a particular point of emphasis being made by Matthew in the continuing presentation of Messiah, or otherwise called uh, the Christ. And it's interesting to me because so often when we consider the grand events of Jesus' life on earth, first advent, so often we try to tell the whole of the story. And as a result of that, we miss the particular thing that is being emphasized in the text that is in our hands. Today I desire you to see in scripture for yourself that personal battle record here between Jesus and Satan as was indeed orchestrated by God and rightly to be characterized as a battle of personal faith in God. What was the temptation? It was a battle of personal faith in God. God. This battle history follows the details of the Lord's personal birth and the Lord's personal baptism 
And as we previously said, there is in Matthew's gospel a significant sense of a time gap between the record of his birth, uh, as reflected in Matthew 1 and 2, and then the record of his baptism, Matthew chapter 3, depending on how you want to account for that time, it's, uh, it's uh, uh, between uh, when Jesus lands in Nazareth until he's baptized, 30 years. If you actually take the reference of Luke at the age of 12, it's 18 years. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, you have a, a phenomenal a gap of time between Matthew 2 and 3, and yet between 3 and 4, no gap at all. In fact, the idea of Jesus being baptized is uh, followed by the aspect of uh, immediacy, a, a movement quickly, as it were. And in Matthew's record, you simply have the time-related word, uh, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, then. Immediately following the pleasure of God the Father expressed, then was Jesus led up of the Spirit, I would argue capital F, Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. This is a case of clear movement forward and rapidly. In verse number one, which is plain enough reading for us all, Jesus is led to the battle of record of the Holy Spirit that had just come upon him at the expression of the Father's pleasure, as recorded at the end of Matthew chapter 3. Mark's gospel account confirms saying, and immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. Uh, there isn't any doubt about the fact that this appointment with Satan was orchestrated by God. Uh, Luke's gospel account stresses the fullness of the Holy Spirit that is upon Jesus, leading him into the wilderness. A wilderness that was created by Adam's sin in the garden. Adam, Adam blew his temptation moment in the garden. Christ succeeds in his temptation moment in the wilderness, a wilderness created by Adam's failure. Nonetheless, this battle is a battle of personal faith, and in this case, the faith of the Lord Jesus. My dead buddy Spurgeon says, no sooner had the Lord been anointed than he was assailed. No sooner had he received a word of the pleasure of the Father when he was tempted uh, of Satan. So we must be careful not to characterize this encounter as uh, perpetuated uh, according to the will of Satan alone, but rather orchestrated by God the Father and God the Spirit for God the Son. There is an Old Testament orchestration of the Almighty involving Satan that is similar to Matthew chapter 4 in the record concerning Jesus, and that would be the case of Job. Careful study yields the view that Old Testament Job foreshadows the case of Jesus in that Job was known to be a righteous man, whom God orchestrated and planned for him an encounter with Satan for the glory of God. 
Job foreshadows the temptation of the most righteous man, the Christ. And Job's suffering, of course, works onto the comfort of any righteous soul who reads of it and studies it. But Jesus' suffering works onto the saving of the righteous soul by faith. And so the contrast and comparison between Old Testament Job and Jesus will pay you rich devotional uh, dividends. I call your attention to the word tempted in verse 1. It means to test so as to ascertain the quality of a thing. This is a test so as to ascertain the quality of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that it would be, as it were, exposed by God the Father and God the Spirit in the life of God the Son for your benefit and for mine. Jesus the Christ was tested of God the Father as led by God the Spirit into this encounter with Satan so as to test and demonstrate the quality of Jesus for the redemptive task at hand. We said last time concerning the baptism of Jesus that in the baptism Jesus identified himself publicly with the sins of the people that he had come to save. And at that moment, the Spirit comes upon him as a dove and the Father's voice speaks of pleasure. And then immediately, the Father and the Spirit move, as it were, the Son of God into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. It was a planned, purposeful uh, 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 schedule uh, in heaven and, uh, and for the purpose of demonstrating the quality of the Lord Jesus for the redemptive task at hand. Verse 2 further sets the scene by telling us of the Lord's 40-day fast and that he was literally starving for food. Verse 2, and when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward hungered. The word hungered refers to a serious physical need. 40 days without any food is a life-threatening event. Those trained in wilderness survival techniques, as we've often referred to it, are taught the 3-3-3 rule. Life is threatened after three minutes without air, three uh, days without water, three weeks without food. And this far exceeds the three-week portal of, uh, of life okay uh, in the physical realm uh, with lack of food. This extended period of time without food uh, was certainly an exercise in dependence upon God the Father and the Spirit of God by the Son of God made man the Christ. It has always interested me that Mark tells us at this particular juncture and this record of wild beasts in the wilderness on this occasion uh, giving rise to the thought that Jesus not only didn't have food for 40 days before this encounter, but that he was so physically weakened, physically weakened, 
that he was prone to become food for some large predator in the region. When it comes to the what's called the law of the wild, uh, the reality is you either eat or you are eaten. And Jesus, in his physical weakened state, uh, was about to be eaten, as it were, in regards to the conditions at hand. That brings us to the first thing that I want to talk about this morning, which is the time of Satan's attack. And I note from verse 3 these words, And when the tempter came. He didn't come day one, didn't come day two, didn't come day three, didn't come day four, didn't come day ten, didn't come day twenty, didn't come day twenty-one, didn't come day thirty. Thirty-one, he came after day forty. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread. Predators, whether of the animal variety or the angelic variety, are not looking for a fair fight. The reason that you're told in bear country to make yourself large and make yourself loud, which some of you know would be easy for me to do, <laughs> but nonetheless, when you're in bear country, you make yourself large and you make yourself and you make yourself loud because the bear gets the idea, I just don't want to mess with that. It's not because the bear thinks that you necessarily are, are stronger than he is, but he just thinks you might put up enough of a fight that it isn't worth his effort in securing you as food. But if you play rabbit tail with the bear and you start to run away, you find out even though he's fat, he can outrun you. And the next thing you know, you are on the lunch menu. Predators are looking for anything but a fair fight. Whether animal or angelic, never are predators looking for a fair fight. Predators are always seeking and looking for the weak, for the injured, for the sick. If you've ever had the occasion to hunt a predator, like a wolf or a coyote, you know that uh, one of the most successful methods for hunting a predator is uh, our injured rabbit call. And this call that you can literally go to any sports store and buy a, a, a tape of it or, a, or a, a digital recording of a rabbit in distress, and you push the button, and it makes these weird noises that hardly sound loud enough for you and I to pay attention to. But nonetheless, it's the sounds of a rabbit that's in distress. And the wolf or the coyote says, there's lunch! And so the predator comes into your blind, and you get him. And so in that case, you're utilizing the instinct of the predator in order to kill the predator. Likewise in fishing. Some of you heard me talk in another venue about my favorite bass lure, uh, which uh, is a lure that you jerk erratically uh, so as to uh, 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 simulate a uh, dying fish. And uh, that thing becomes, when floated before the face of a bass, it becomes uh, almost irresistible. Even uh, when the waters turn cool, uh, that old bass just can't hardly resist the aspect of that jerking, dying bait uh, that, is, that is floated before his, his face. Satan and his minions always seek to take advantage of circumstance. 
angelic predators prey upon human weaknesses of the physical sort, of the emotional sort, of the spiritual sort. I can't tell you how many older saints that are experiencing physical difficulties and faithful saints that find themselves in a condition of sickness or weakness that have said to me, Pastor, I, I just feel like I'm so out of sorts with God. And the truth of the matter is, there isn't anything wrong with their salvation. And there really isn't anything wrong many times of their walk with God. But I'm telling you that the angelic predator delights to take advantage of physical, emotional, and spiritual weaknesses. This is why Peter tells us that Satan, like a lion, seeks whom he may devour. He's looking for believers that he may devour in the sense that they're already weakened by circumstances. They're already uh, uh, in some way uh, uh, by circumstance uh, set in such a way uh, so as to become easy prey. And so it's significant that Jesus was made, and we could say made by God the Father in the Spirit, Jesus was made to be physically starving, not just hungry. I mean, I'll be hungry today by the time I'm done here. I'll be, I'll be hungry at noon today. That's not what we're talking about in this text. We're talking about starving. Jesus didn't just want to eat. Jesus needed to eat. And Satan comes at that very moment, and Satan talks about food. Why is it that when it's late at night, and you're watching some program that they come on and show you Big Macs and Whoppers and, and the latest deal at the fast food restaurant because they are hoping that you will make a midnight run, uh, that you will uh, give in to the aspect of your appetite uh, in the late hours of the night and that, uh, and that you will uh, go after the food that they are offering you. And so, again, it is absolutely no coincidence, obviously, and it is also not beyond our understanding, commonly, that Satan would, of course, first come taking advantage of the time and the weakened condition by means of food, or specifically, lack thereof. Jesus is, in this moment, in the will of God for testing. The evil one administrating the test is by God's own invitation. And the evil one seeks prey upon the physical weakness of Jesus. But I would remind you, in the will of God. The Lord Jesus was led of the Spirit into the wilderness to meet up with the devil. First thing to think about, the time of Satan's attack. The second thing has to do with the types of Satan's, Satan's attack. And there's an awful lot that could be said here, and I won't say half as much as what you know I could say about it. But nonetheless, I'll have a few things here uh, to say, but I want to stick to Matthew's point because that's really the important thing I want you to see as it relates to this fourth chapter. 
and the continuity of Matthew's idea as he is driven by the Spirit of God to lead us, as it were, from the birth records of Christ uh, to the baptism record of Christ to the battle record of Christ. And that idea of birth, baptism, battle is a thing. And it's a thing in Matthew. And it's a thing in Matthew for the purpose of presenting to us God the King and his kingdom to come. That brings us to the types. And, of course, there are three waves of assault, as often noted in this record. There's much to be said here about the patterns of Satan's attack in comparison uh, to biblical history and precept, and I'll get to most of that uh, next time we're together. But in keeping with Matthew's thematic presentation of king and kingdom in mind, we can see clearly that Jesus the Christ, the born king of the Jews, is being tested as to his faith, in God, his dependence upon the Father. Now, this is very important because you and I know uh, that everything that operates in the believer's life before God operates on the basis of faith. And Jesus Christ has exercised his faith perfectly. If you go back to that verse of scripture that I said most of us know at the very beginning, trust in the Lord with all your heart. How well do you do that? Well, I try. You try. But I would surely not say when it comes to trusting the Lord with all my heart that I was perfect. Would you say you are? No, you would not. What about Christ? Yep. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. How do you do with that part? I don't do so well all the time. A lot of times I try to figure it out for myself. A lot of times I try to, I try to exercise myself to, uh, to, to take matters into my own hand and, and be my own solution. In fact, sometimes I, I actually have a thought that I'd be lazy if I didn't. And yet here we have uh, the Lord Jesus, who is God the Son, uh, able to do anything that he would have mind to do, and yet he is so uniquely submitted to the will of the Father and the Spirit, he will not exercise himself at all apart from the will of God. And so when the devil says, why don't you just do a, a little bit of that zap thing? Why don't you just do, take these stones over here? They kind of look white. They kind of look like loaves of bread that just came out of the oven anyhow. Why don't you just change the genetic structure of that bread and uh, make that hard rock into a fresh, hot loaf of bread? After all, you're really hunger, hungry, and hungry is no sin. Hungry is no sin. And the Lord could turn the rock into, into bread. And that the Lord Jesus says to the devil, no, I'm not going to do that, because my life is not just about one thing that God said, but all the things that God's word has said. Jesus was being poised and positioned to exercise his trust in the will and the word of God completely. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him. 
In all thy ways acknowledge him. What about the bathroom? What about the bedroom? What about the living room? What about the kitchen? What about the basement? In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Listen, there's only one who has ever walked on this planet to perfectly fulfill Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, and that one is Jesus Christ. Perfect faith, Jesus Christ. But let me just remind you, as we think upon this first wave of assault this morning, that though the circumstances were terrible, and they were terrible, and we know that the devil was invited in, and he was invited in, when we think a little more upon this idea of the devil's approach relative to food, as recorded in verse 3, turning the stones into bread, You understand, I trust, that in essence, the devil's temptation fell along the lines of you, Jesus, need to trust God a little less and exercise yourself in this matter of your starvation. You are needfully hungry. And there is no sin in being hungry, especially after 40 days. Your need, Lord Jesus, is real. You have the personal ability, Lord Jesus, to satisfy your own legitimate needs. So, in light of those facts, command the stones to be turned instantaneously into hot baked bread and eat, baby, eat. to this assault on the faith of the Lord Jesus. Jesus simply said to the devil, there is more to this moment in the will of God than my quick satisfaction with food. The Lord's faith passed the food challenge perfectly. Brings us to number two. The circumstances were terrible, and they remained terrible. And the devil remained to take up the assault on faith in a different way. It is as if the devil thought that if you cannot make faith to fall and fail by tempting the Christ to trust God less, maybe you can tempt him by saying you should trust God more. And it's amazing when the devil is whispering in the ear of even a saint, of how that the devil will whisper one direction and then just flip it on his head and go completely in the other way. And you see that right here. Uh, There is indeed uh, temptation. You ought to trust God a little less. You do a little more for yourself. You ought to do something for yourself. You ought to do a little more for yourself is the first kind of a temptation. And then the second temptation is, you know, really, you ought to do more. You ought to do more. You ought to do something more. The whole jump from the pinnacle of the temple thing, verse 5 and 6, was Satan's temptation, deception, crafted upon the Lord's dependence, upon the will and the word of God as had been stated. Satan's twist on Psalm 91 was to encourage Jesus to prove his trust in God by a spectacular 
and a daring thing. I trust God so much, I'm going to climb up on the top of the steeple and jump off the top uh, uh, to the ground to prove to the congregation that I am a great man of God. I am just using that as an illustration. You know that if I did that, uh, the only thing that I'd meet is my early death. That's just goofy. You cannot put God in a test like that. There's no reason to try to balance this big old fat body on the top of a little steeple, even if it has been recently painted and looks good to jump from. The reality is, is that you and I must be careful not to be willing to trust God for things he hasn't promised us. So I never say, oh, God, the Cadillac, the Cadillac, the Cadillac. Oh, God, the Cadillac, the Cadillac, the Cadillac. I never pray that. And neither should you. Satan put that little twist on Psalm 91, but Jesus knew that God's protection, listen, God's protection is always attached to God's appointed way, not to the presumption of human folly. These days, as we approach the election, when I hear some believers talking about the aspect of, uh, of uh, the election and the will of God, it just makes me absolutely want to cringe. Because I got news for you. The election will probably not go the way that I'll be voting, and then most of you will be voting. And yet I tell you that anybody that's going to assign that to God just doesn't understand God's sovereignty or providence. The will of God is clear. God is for life. No matter what goofy preachers say. And the reality is, Jesus knew that God's protection is always attached to God's appointed way, not to the presumptions of human folly. And you say, well, couldn't God make it all right in America? Well, of course he could. He obviously doesn't want to. But we know the will of God for you. And we know the will of God for me. And we know what God would have of our church as a lighthouse to the community conserving the proving saving of Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh, may God help us not to engage in some namby-pamby theology, but to trust God. <laughs> Even as we see our Lord trusting the Father and the spirit in these moments of time. Jesus was not into tempting God by foolish risk-taking. And neither should you and I be. Brings us to the third thing this morning, where Satan gives up all pretense and offers Jesus everything that Satan legitimately had to offer, namely, all the kingdoms of this sinful world, if Jesus would just bow down once and worship the devil. Now, in order to gain a fresh perspective on this third wave of assault, I want you to turn with me to a very well-known messianic psalm. And I'm speaking of Psalm 2. Psalm 2. And I'm interested in verses 6 to 8. 
Psalm 2, verse 6. God the Father speaking says, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I read that verse just to remind you that uh, Psalm 2 is without doubt hugely messianic, hugely prophetic concerning God's king. And in verse 6, you have the action of God towards his king in setting him up. And interestingly, on the holy hill in Zion, or if you will, Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. Verse 7. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Who's talking now? God the Son. Who is talking in verse 6? God the Father. Who's talking now? God the Son. I will declare the decree, the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son. Matthew 3, end of the chapter. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. This day I have begotten thee. Watch now. Verse 8. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thy inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Who's talking now? God the Father is saying to God the Son, you ask me, you ask me for the nations, for the kingdoms of the world. You ask me for the kingdoms of the world, and I'll give you all of the earth for your possession. So back to Matthew chapter 4, when the devil takes Christ, verse 8, into a high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, and saith unto Jesus, verse 9, all these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. What is going on right there? Well, you see something of the tenacity of Satan in that we know from the record of the Old Testament that he aspired to replace God. He aspired to be as God. And after he tempts Christ with Trust the Father a little less. Trust the Father a little more. He then ends his third wave of assault with his ultimate offer, which is to give to Messiah, to give to the Lord Jesus, exactly what it is he came to secure. And the contingency is placed, if thou wilt, fall down and worship me once. What is Satan doing? He is again tenaciously aspiring to unseat God. 
And what is the nature of the temptation? It comes exactly along the lines of uh, the promise that was made to God the Son. King Jesus has offered the world's kingdoms. But his calling and mission was all about the kingdom of God is received from God. Not the sinful kingdoms of this world. And so Jesus told Satan, verse number 10, get out of here. Take a walk. Be gone. And then Jesus made it clear that Satan himself was under eternal obligation to worship and serve God and God alone. Just because Satan has tenaciously held on to his sin of aspiring to undermine God, doesn't mean he ever will, ultimately, and doesn't mean that he is not under abiding obligation to worship and to serve God and God alone. These waves of assault on the faith of Jesus were uh, perfectly traversed. Our Lord would not abandon the plan of humble dependence upon the Godhead as man. He would be fully resigned to the gracious disposal of God, no matter what. Think of that. What kind of faith do we have in evidence here concerning Messiah, God's king? We have the kind of faith that is absolutely resigned to the gracious disposal of God, no matter what. Satan's tenacious attacks, over for the moment. As Luke says it, he'll be back at a more opportune time just prior to the crucifixion because Satan is tenacious. But I like the comment of G. Campbell Morgan at this point. He says, hell, for that moment, was exhausting. Matthew wants us to see that God the king was tested as to the quality of his trust in God and proven to be perfect in faith. This is why in the study of the book of Hebrews, we will ultimately come to that expression uh, towards the end of our study that says Jesus the Christ is the author and the finisher of our faith. The purpose of the temptation was to test the king of kings that you and I might be able to see that testing and come to the understanding that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. And so it was with the evil angel gone and the test of faith over and the test passed with all perfection that elect angels then come and deacon or serve the Lord Jesus in that moment of his success. Blessed moment of human accomplishment in the will of God. And so what is Matthew's point? <laughs> Matthew's point is, this is your king. This is your king. This is my king. Oh, Let's bow down.
Let's talk about the name of Christ. Let's make him the center of our love and our heart and serve him completely. What a glorious, glorious account. Sure, good example for when we face temptation. We'll get to that next week. But primarily, so that you and I could see that our king has been duly tested. And in all points, as are we, and yet, as Hebrews says it, yet without sin. Oh, thank you, Lord. Oh, thank you, Lord. Oh, thank you, Lord. Father, again today, we introduce this opportunity in the scripture with those words of the song, yearning for the day of temptation, it's death. Our study this morning reminds us that that day will indeed come, for it too has been a part of your holy plan. From before there was a blade of grass, a bird or a bee. Thank you for the reminder of something of the glories of Jesus Christ. And as we prayed at the start, we pray at the finish. May something today of his victories and his vitalities, something today of his great accomplishments and promises yet to be fulfilled, secure our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. For we do pray these things in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen.